in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Dustin Melbarnes, Nathan Lutz, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, where we watch movies, then talk about them. I'm your host, Chad Robinson, and joining me today is a crossover host. We're really excited. We love these crossover episodes here at the Roundtable. Mario Lanza from Staff Picks Podcast. Mario? Oh, I'm very excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I love crossovers as well. There is nothing I like more in life than nerding out with movie nerds. Yeah, yeah, I love it. And it's great meeting other podcasts, listening to other other podcasts. So Staff Picks, listen to it a couple of times. It's awesome. Check it out. But Mario, can you tell us a little bit more about this awesome podcast that you've done? Okay, Staff Picks is kind of a uh, passion project I started about three years ago, and I am a huge movie nerd, like to the point that I don't have a lot of friends, and I didn't have a lot of friends growing up, because I'd rather watch movies than hang out with people, (laughs) much to my social life's detriment, but I've developed kind of a quirky, odd personality because of it, but the benefit is I know a lot of movies, and it's not just mainstream stuff, I know obscure stuff. You know, random TV movies from the 80s, stuff that was only on HBO in the mid-80s, stuff like that, that are hard to find. And I have this weird photographic memory that I tend not to forget these things. And so at a certain point, I'm like, I want to do a podcast on movies that most people wouldn't know. And so I started doing that, and I thought, you know, these are a little, little vague, even for movie nerds. Like, I'm pulling out a horror movie like The Other from 1972, which nobody knows. Oh, and I'm like, this I is like a that. tough one for yeah, tough one for people to find. So I'm like, I'll just kind of convert this podcast into something a little bigger. And now it's movies that deserve more love. So now using that criteria, I can pick underrated movies, stuff that flopped, stuff that gets crapped on all the time, or obscure underrated movies. Just anything I basically want to talk about, and that's what I do on Staff Picks. I, I try to celebrate movies that other people wouldn't. That's awesome. I, I appreciate that. Digging, digging out of the archives, finding some... Maybe uh, gold in that trash heap. Mm-hmm. What's what's the one that surprised you the most during your podcast that you've done? Surprised me in which sense? Like, this is good or I'm really going to go to bat for it? <laughs> I'll tell you one, is that the second episode I ever did was The Village, the M. Night Shyamalan movie. Mm-hmm. Because that was like the poster child for staff picks. I'm like, everybody hates this movie. This was like the most hated movie of its time. And I watched it, and I'm like, this is actually pretty good. Like, it's not as bad as people say. And I happen to have a friend who's a screenwriter in Hollywood who will go to bat for that movie, saying that is an amazing screenplay that people just misinterpret. That's the problem. People expect it to be a twist-ending movie. It's not really a twist-ending movie. That's just part of it, but it's got a bigger meaning. So I got him on there, and he was so excited to talk about it. And we just we just nerded out over the village for two hours, and it was the second episode I ever did. And I'm like... You know what? I loved that movie after our episode, and I didn't love it before. I kind of liked it. Now I love it. Yeah, I find that too. Like 
are talking about a movie and I'm like, this just gained at least a half a star just from hearing other people being enthusiastic about it. Now, The mm-hmm. Village might be a challenge. Three quarters of that movie is awesome. But I will listen to your podcast and see if that, uh, I'll listen to that episode, see if it becomes more than like a two because I'm still mad. <laughs> okay, well, I'll tell you. The guest I had on that is a guy named Brian Scully. He's a screenwriter in Hollywood. My absolute number one best guest. So if you listen to that movie, he will sell you on that movie so hard. And then you can listen to maybe some other ones he did. He also did Arlington Road with me. He did one called Last Night, a Canadian movie starring Sandra Oh. oh okay. He is so good at explaining movies. You, will, I guarantee you will steal him. You will poach him and bring him on as a guest here. <laughs> we will do that. Yes, we're always looking for great guests. <laughs> so what we do with our guests, we give them a couple warm-ups. Gave you a, a little cheater there with your own podcast. But now we're going to ask our questions. So the first question we want to ask is, what or who was your favorite on-screen animal? Oh, this is a fun one. I, I can give you a good story about this. This one requires a little backstory. And I also, I will warn you, requires some profanity. All right. Cover your uh, ears, children. <laughs> put the kids to bed. So in the movie The Jerk, you may know where I'm going with this. Yes, one. I do. <laughs> so... I was not allowed to see R-rated movies as a kid, and this is something I always bring up, that it's hilarious I have such a vast knowledge of movies over the years, despite the fact that I couldn't see R movies until I was 17, and I actually followed that rule. So, like, I had to make up for many R-rated movies later. But the thing with The Jerk is, The Jerk was rated R in 1978 or 9 or whatever. I wasn't allowed to see it, but it would be on TV. They would show it on TV all the time, and I don't know if younger listeners would know this, but older listeners would know this. Back in the 80s and 90s, they would show movies on TV, and there was a special TV version of it, where they'd actually film different scenes with different dialogue, and it would only be shown on the TV cut. Yeah. So I saw The Jerk probably 50, 60 times as a kid when it was on TV. You can watch it on TV because it's no longer rated R. But the dog's name in The Jerk on TV is stupid. <laughs> so Steve Martin's always like, hey, stupid. Hey, stupid, come this way. Boy, you're a stupid dog. I should call you stupid. And I thought that was so funny that your dog's name was Stupid. And I, for years, grew up knowing this was the, the, the gospel of the jerk. Steve Martin had the dog named Stupid. Lo and behold, I finally saw the theatrical cut many years later, probably in like 2000. It was way later. And I finally learned what the dog's name really was. Now, would you like to say that or would you like me to say it? I'm going to pass that baton to you. <laughs> the dog's name in the jerk is Head. <laughs> yep. Which is way funnier than stupid. And I, I, I was like drinking Coke or orange juice or something the first time I was, I saw the theatrical version and it all came shooting out my nose. Cause I had no idea, idea the dog's name was <laughs> head. <laughs> I, I have this conversation with Russell all the time. He's like, yeah, I watched all the Friday, the 13th movies on TV. Like, Why? Why? You, you've ruined all the points of those. Now Russell's going to write me an angry letter. Uh. <laughs> yeah. So that is my all time favorite screen animal i will say his name is s head the dog and the jerk very nice very <laughs> nice I, i'm the same way my parents banned r-rated movies they were very strict about it and now i've watched over 800 horror movies so yeah <laughs> yeah future parents out there current parents eh, maybe let your kids watch a couple r-rated movies or they're gonna start a podcast <laughs> Well, in their defense, some of those TV cuts were really funny on their own terms. Like, I remember the Police Academy TV cut, the National Lampoon's Vacation. Like, I can quote those TV cuts because I've seen them way more. And a lot of the dialogue's different. I did always assume Mother Humper was a TV dialogue for Trimmers. 
I was wrong. Oh yeah, that's well, well, theatrical. Well, that's, that's theatrical. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> Except for the last one. Uh, <laughs> yeah, for me, my favorite on-screen animal. I think I've got to go with Rocket Raccoon. Like that's just awesome. Either that or something like Babe. You know, that'll do, Pig. It's just fine. Solid answer. Babe is solid. So Mario, what is the last movie you saw? Oh gosh, this is a hard question to ask for somebody who runs a podcast on obscure movies. <laughs> all I do is watch obscure movies and file them away if I want to do a podcast. I will say the last movie I probably saw, and it wasn't in a theater because of COVID. I haven't been in the theater in forever. But a friend of mine recommended a 2018 movie called uh, Sorry to Bother You. Okay, I've heard you know of that. that? One? I've heard of it, yeah. It's an odd movie. It's about a guy who takes a job as a telemarketer, and he winds up in a weird universe he was not prepared for. And it's a, it's a really odd science fiction-y slash comedy movie. I don't know if I liked it or didn't like it. It was so weird, but it's unpredictable. <laughs> but it's again, it's, it's a movie you'd remember if you ever see it. Watch uh, Sorry to Bother You. All right. That, uh, that sterling recommendation there. <laughs> Mario doesn't know if he likes it, but you watch it. Tell us if you like it. Yeah, you tell me if I should like it. There you go. It'll, <laughs> it'll come up in a little bit on your podcast. Yeah. For me, it was 1934's Maniac. I've been going through and doing this thing where I'm trying to fill in two movies for every single year back to horror movies Inception in 1896. Some years there aren't two horror movies, but uh, 1934 was one I had to fill in. This was a movie that I had to go back and keep checking, like, do I have the right cut? It seemed like it was made in the 70s. There was nudity in it. There was very gory scene. There was this very gory scene. Like, what is happening? Terrible acting. I think Leonard Maltin called it the worst movie ever made. So, so with that ringing endorsement, I actually really enjoyed it. I will go to bat for it. This is just a bat crap crazy movie. If you enjoy that from the 30s, it will surprise you. Maybe you saw the TV cut. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I'm like, wait, are they, is there nudity in the thirties? Was that allowed? <laughs> this guy like didn't make it in America. I don't know that there was a lot of strange things. So moving on from that strangeness, we're going to go to another bit of a strange movie. It's an off the beaten path. Western 1995's the quick and the dead. So the quick and the dead stars Sharon Stone, Gene Hackman, Russell Crowe, Roberts Blossom, Kevin Conway, Lance Henriksen, Pat Hingle, Gary Sinise, and Leonardo DiCaprio. So what a cast there. It's released, like I said, in 1995, grossed $18 million, placed 85th in the box office. So not great. <laughs> movie that placed ahead of it was Johnny Mnemonic. Don't know that one. And movie that placed behind it was The Big Green. <laughs> I, I am at a loss here. Have you covered either of these? No, and I will not. <laughs> okay. That's quite a murderer's row the quick and the dead finds itself between. Yeah, yeah. The number one movie that year I have seen, it was Toy Story. So IMDb, they're a little mixed on this. It's 6.4. Rotten Tomatoes. The critics give it 59%. The audience gives it 53 So it seems like it's right in the middle. We're not really sure. Do we like it? Do we not like it? Great cast. No awards. So, Mario, we're going to go through our expectations. Have you seen The Quick of the Dead before? Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. So well, okay. I'll, I'll give you a backstory. Quick. 
This is the number one movie I recommend to people always. I, I have gone on record saying this is the most underrated movie of the past 30 years. It's always the movie I pimp out. It is the impetus for staff picks, this movie, because I love talking about it, even though it was a huge flop. And like you said, only 59% of people say they like it. Wow. The number one movie. Okay. Number so, one. So what happens here is people give us a list and there are three movies and we pick one due to the weather or whatever we're feeling like. It's Tuesday, so we're going to pick the third one. Don't know. It's random. This is the one we pick. So that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. So did you do like... I get to, do, I, do I get to name the other two that I gave you? I We love lists, so go for it. Okay, they gave me three movies. They said, you're the guy that runs movie us podcast on underrated, underloved movies. Give us three movies to pick from. And I'm like, number one, The Quick and the Dead. That's the number one movie I pimp out to people. I was going to do The Village, and I decided not to because <laughs> we just talked about this. But I also gave you a movie from, from 1980 called My Bodyguard, which I've always said is maybe the best teen movie ever made. And I, think, I certainly think it's the best teen movie of the 80s. But it's one that nobody ever talks about anymore. That was the other one. Yes. And then I also gave you The Bad News Bears from 1976, which is my personal favorite movie of all time. And one that I think a lot of people misinterpret. They think it's a comedy, but it's not. It's a drama disguised as a comedy. So... If you ever want to give me back for those two movies, I would love to pimp those out as well. Yes, that was a tough list to choose from. I, w I will say we had a fun game of your categories of <laughs> teen movie that no one talks about and things like that. Oh, yeah. So when you first saw Quick and the Dead, it sounds like you liked it. When was the last time you saw it and has it held up for you? Well, the last time I saw it was about half an hour ago. So <laughs> Rewatched it. Um, so this movie was a flop, huge flop when it came out. I mean, it's a Western starring Sharon Stone. I mean, come on. What? <laughs> on paper, there's no way this movie was going to be a big draw. And there's, we'll get into the backstory of this movie. There's a huge, really interesting history behind it, which I think will really sell people on why they should like it. But I did not see it in the theater. I laughed when I first saw, heard about it. Oh, yeah, the, the lady from Basic Instinct and, uh, and uh, the Casino. She's going to be in a Western. Yeah, that's, I hate Westerns. I cannot stand <laughs> Westerns. They're so boring. So I didn't see this for years. It probably wasn't until the early 2000s, so I didn't see it probably, probably 10 years after it came out, and I don't even remember why I saw it. It would have been on a recommendation on word of mouth. Someone would have said, you know, this movie is really fun, and I'm like, really? A Western with Sharon Stone? And they're like, yeah, but it's not a Western with Sharon Stone. It's a gunfighting tournament with all the big cartoony over-the-top gunfighters in the Old West fighting for supremacy. And I'm like, well, that's way more interesting than the poster of the movie makes it look. Yes. So I watched it for the first time. I'm like, this movie is so not what I expected. And then by the time I saw it, Russell Crowe was a big star. Leo DiCaprio was a big star. And they weren't at the time. This was like their first movie, more early, early movies. So I was shocked. This movie was so much better than I expected. And I, again, I've been on a crusade for 20 years pimping it out to people. Yeah, it's stunning. When I think Western, you, you hit it with Sharon Stone, but Russell Crowe is not exactly who I would cast in an American Western either. Mm -hmm. So we'll get into that a little bit later. For oh, yeah. me, I covered this in the Silverado episode that was just a few back. Check that out if you haven't listened to it. We had a big Western fan. I'm not a Western person. I think I might hit 10 now of Westerns I've seen. So he told me, hey, this is a movie where they get the quickest, fastest guns in the West and they all meet to have a shootout and it's got a bunch of stars. It's like, I'm yeah. down for that. That sounds cool. So, yeah. That's what I expected. I looked at the cast list. 
like Gene Hackman playing likely a bad guy. I just assumed maybe <laughs> maybe he could be the good guy, but he was the bad guy here. So yeah, yeah that that was exciting. It's fun to see him just be that villain. It was interesting seeing Leonardo DiCaprio. I'm kind of glad I didn't see this movie early with him because I had a thing where I really hated Leonardo DiCaprio early on. Uh, mm-hmm. Just you know, teenage jealousy. All the girls like Leonardo DiCaprio. It's like I don't. I I have to dislike this guy. He's so he was stealing all your action. That's the problem. We'll go with that. Yes, <laughs> yes. Leonardo DiCaprio was the only thing standing between me and <laughs> dating whoever I wanted. Yep. I I did wind up. I think I liked Silverado better as a more traditional Western, but I think this is a great popcorn alternative. Hey, I don't. I want to watch something left, right of center of the Western genre and just see a bunch of cool gunfights. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I enjoyed this. Well, again, to follow up on what I said, I don't like Westerns. There's probably maybe one Western in my life I've ever liked. That was probably unforgiven. I I like that one. That's a good one. (laughs) But that's the way, that's how I sell this movie to people. This is not really a Western. No. Like it, it follows no rules of the Western. It happens to be set in the old West, but that's just so they can set up this tournament, this gunfighting tournament, which is, I mean, it's not unlike A Knight's Tale in a way. I compare this movie to A Knight's Tale a lot of the time. Oh, I love A Knight's Tale. I will go to bat for that one. Yeah, but what I tell people is this is not a Western. This is a Sam Raimi movie. Yes. That's the best way I can describe it. It's the Evil Dead. It's Spider-Man. It's any of the Sam Raimi trademarks just happen to be in the Old West, but it's a Sam Raimi movie at heart. Absolutely. So we're going to take a quick commercial break. And after that, I'm going to spoil the movie for you. So if you haven't seen... The Quick and the Dead, go check it out. Crazy movie. Then come back to our podcast where I will spoil it in just a few minutes. What happens when two modern film fans go back and rewatch all the old classic films from yesteryear to see if they hold up? You get the Classic Film Jerks podcast. Find the Classic Film Jerks podcast on all the major platforms. Welcome to the Flashback Flicks Retro Movie Podcast. I'm Ricky. I'm Grayson. And every week we review a movie from the past and reflect on things we missed, things we loved, and things we want to see again. Yeah, because we believe any movie worth watching is worth watching again. So if you like films, friendship, and a lot of callbacks, I mean, just so many callbacks, then subscribe on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever RSS feeds go for like-minded, movie-loving individuals. Like you. And we're back. So last warning before I ruin 1995's The Quick and the Dead, we'll be covering spoilers here. So cover your ears if you don't want want to listen. Otherwise, tune right in. So we've got a dueling tournament in the old west town of Redemption that attracts a female gunslinger named Lady. town is ruled by John Herod, who's a vicious outlaw who hosts the tournament. Each contestant must fight once per day until one yields or dies. Lady announces she wants to enter the tournament for the money, but Herod makes her prove herself by saving a man he calls Preacher from hanging. Lady manages to shoot the rope in the nick of time to save Preacher, who's actually a man named Court. He's sworn off guns, but is alleged to be the best shot in the West. Lady drinks and winds up spending a night with a really young man named The Kid, who believes Herod is his father. The kid wants to enter the tournament to prove himself. There are a lot of colorful characters that serve as fodder to the three main contestants, including a Native American who can't be killed by bullets, the Swedish quick-draw champion, and Dog Kelly, who's an outlaw. The townspeople, not ones to put up with random murder in their streets, 
hire Clay Cantrell to kill Herod, but unfortunately Herod is a really good shot and he prevails. He promises to raise their taxes until they learn respect. Kind of like Zap Brannigan, the beatings will continue until morale improves. <laughs> Lady is revealed to be a woman named Ellen, whose father was hanged by Herod and his men. Herod kills the kid in a shootout, but Ellen and Court advance. Court pretends to kill Ellen in a duel with help from the local doctor, so Court would face Herod. Herod's men break Court's hand or are told to kill Court if he does still happen to win. But during his duel, the clock tower explodes and Ellen emerges to face Herod. Court kills Herod's men and Ellen outduels Court, then tosses her father's badge to Court and rides away. Yeah. <laughs> I know you're reading that right off like an IMDb or Wikipedia. And I will flat out say... That That is not going to sell anybody to see this movie. It's a very dry <laughs> summary of a really cool, over-the-top, cartoony movie. Yeah, yeah. I, I do write my own, but uh, it is, it's hard to cover all the weird things that happened with this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I tried to throw in. It really does have a colorful cast. I enjoyed all of, all of the characters we, we just meet along the way. Said Swedish quick draw champion. He was great. The Native American that can't be killed by bullets. That's actually yanked from history. There was a thing called a ghost dance and they wore ghost shirts uh, that would prevent them from being killed by bullets. So it was cool to see that worked in. That was one of my criticisms of our other Western was we weren't working Native Americans into here. So that uh, that that was really cool to see. Spotted Horse was his name. Spotted Horse. I quote him all the time. Yeah. <laughs> when someone takes a dig at me, like on Twitter or Facebook, and it bounces off, I will always say, Spotted Horse cannot be killed by a bullet. <laughs> I love that. And it was a very Sam Raimi-esque. You mentioned him earlier. You know, we're getting almost elements of horror. We see people shot and coming back, and Spotted Horse just keeps coming back, and Russell Crowe's screaming, Bullet, bullet, someone throw me a bullet. <laughs> We've got the heads exploding. So yeah, I guess we can talk about that. Of yeah. This this is not a Western Western. This, like you said, Sam Raimi, Evil Dead. I love him. This is not Sam Raimi from Spider-Man 3. This is Evil Dead, Drag Me to Hell, Sam Raimi. Of I enjoy my extra gore, my holes in the head, things <laughs> like that. Yeah, can we talk about that a little? Because I, I have to sell people on this movie. A okay. plot summary is not going to do it. We got to go into it. We got to go a little deeper here. Love it. Okay, Sam Raimi made The Evil Dead with his buddy Bruce Campbell and a couple other people, and most people know that movie. They made it for like a hundred bucks out in the woods. One of the most famous independent movies of all time. Sam Raimi, an inimitable style. You see a movie, you know it's by Sam Raimi. In fact, I saw a joke about the the Quick and the Dead. It was someone saying. Uh, Mr. Raimi, how much, uh, how many close-ups would you like in this movie? And Sam Raimi just says, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds about Sam right. Sam Raimi has never met a zoom cut, a Dutch angle, a jump cut, a cockeyed camera angle, a spiral zoom in towards someone's face. He has never met one of those shots he did not like. And again, you see it in The Evil Dead. You see it in Spider-Man especially. Drag me to hell. But this movie is unique because Sam Raimi was only known for doing horror movies. He had Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2, Army of Darkness. He did Darkman. Have you seen Darkman? I haven't, no. Darkman is very uh, important to the Sam Raimi uh, library, so definitely see that one at some point. And he wanted to cross over and do mainstream movies. He was trying to get into Hollywood and do mainstream stuff, but nobody would hire him because he's too weird. He's got <laughs> a weird style. 
And how this movie came about is Sharon Stone was riding high on the success of, you know, Basic Instinct's Liver. Uh, she won, just won an Oscar for Casino. So she's like one of the most powerful women in Hollywood. And she had this script someone had given her about a female gunfighter in the Old West. And they're like, you know, you have so much power in Hollywood right now. You can pick the cast. You can pick the director. And she's like, Sam Raimi. And they're like, no, pick somebody else. <laughs> because Sam Raimi doesn't do mainstream movies. He has horror movies. Yeah. And this is a very straight script. So she used her way to get Sam Raimi. And it's only because she liked Army of Darkness. She wanted to work with this guy. And that, you know, that set the stage for the entire rest of Raimi's career, how he ended up doing uh, Spider-Man, Dragon Hell, all the bigger stuff that came later. It's all because this was the one where Sharon Stone gave him his first chance. Yeah, I thought the Army of Darkness quote from her was very strange. It wasn't, I like Evil Dead too. It was, I like Army of Darkness. And I like Army of Darkness too. That just wouldn't have been the one that I would have quoted. But yeah. yeah. But again, but that's something we'll get into more in the podcast. The only reason this movie exists is because of Sharon Stone. She handpicked Sam Raimi. She handpicked Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. He was kind of an unknown at the time. And she's like, I want this kid in my movie. He plays the kid. And they're like, no, he's a nobody. She paid his own salary out of her own pocket just so he would be in the movie. Yeah, I've, this was a giant flex from Sharon Stone, and then it bombed, so I don't know how much yeah. control everyone gave <laughs> well, her later. Well, that's the thing. That's what, what I, I hate about it, that she also picked Russell Crowe out. Russell, this is Russell Crowe's first American movie. Sharon Stone's like, I want that guy as court. That's the preacher. And the studio wouldn't hire him. And she's like, you don't hire Russell Crowe. I walk. I walk from this picture. It never gets made. So she threw her weight around, got it all made, and then it just flopped. And it's it kills me that it flopped because this is such a fun movie. Oh, there's so many stars in it. It's got one of the greatest casts ever. And then it, it flopped so hard that Sam Raimi almost quit Hollywood because it really hurt his feelings because he loved this movie. And it flopped. And so he, he retired, basically, and his friends had to talk him out of it and talk him back into directing. And he eventually worked his way up to Spider-Man. But this is the movie that almost killed his career. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very feministic Western, which is actually interesting because most Westerns, the women play bit parts at best, mm -hmm. and they are very much background characters. We start with Sharon Stone's lady, and the men here are just taking jab after jab. One of the first things they say to her when she gets to the tournament, there's no rule against ladies. It's just that women can't shoot for crap. I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. She she immediately proves them wrong. She's got a great scene where she's pretending to be dead and just shoots the guy immediately in the opening. Great quiet opening too, but mm -hmm. kicks into the music when she's riding off all triumphant, like ha, just got over on this like slack jawed yokel type character. I can't remember his name. He shows up later. Okay, well let me talk about him. Just to go into a side note, this movie has one of the greatest casts of supporting characters you're ever going to see. The guy that she shoots at the start, you may recognize him as uh, Jigsaw from the Saw movies. That's yes, Tobin Bell. Tobin Bell, yep. Yeah, and then Lance Henriksen is in here later from the Alien movies and other stuff. And then uh, who else is in here? Keith David. Gary Sinise pops up out of nowhere. Yeah. Roberts Blossom, who's the shovel slayer from Home Alone. It's like got such a great supporting cast. Yeah, I, I wanted better for Keith David. Like. Mm -hmm. I, I love him and everything he shows up in. I just, it was like 33 minutes and he hadn't had a single line. Like the dude has a majestic voice. Just let <laughs> Keith David talk. 
Yeah, another that the Bill Simmons on uh, the the Rewatchables podcast calls them that guys. Guys <laughs> you just recognize immediately, but you don't know their name. Keith David, another one in this. There's a guy Rainer Shine who's in a bunch of westerns. It's just this whole movie is that guys making up the side characters. Yeah, yeah, and there the duels here. I think the what we're all waiting for. So we're waiting for this tournament and Lady's first duel is super tense. There's just this silence and the cuts back to the clock and you hear the <laughs> clock ticking. And I, honestly, when I watched it, I was like, it seems like she's kind of got a slow shot. <laughs> <laughs> well, as they said, women can't shoot for crap. So maybe they were right. <laughs> uh, well, uh, Tobin Bell is worse. Jigsaw yeah. had to rig up traps, you know, no traps here. Jigsaw is powerless. Well, okay. If you watch this movie, you'd, so you'd never seen it before this viewing, right? Correct. You got to watch this movie a couple times. You'll catch a lot of little subtle stuff. I don't know if you noticed that Russell Crowe tips Sharon Stone off. He's like, when you go out there, listen for the clock. There's a little click yep. before. So she has an advantage built in this whole time because court is telling her how to win the duels. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And spotted horse, like we've talked about, he's saying, I can't be killed by bullets. I wanted, I didn't want him to go up against any of the guys. I wanted him to somehow have an emergency, just leave like. He was a cool dude. A lot of the other people, they were pretty much scumbags. It's like, okay, I, I don't mind them being killed, but this guy's just pretty cool. Well, that's the thing. Like, if it's a gunfighting tournament, you get all these, like, pro wrestler type gunfighters from around the West. They're not going to be nice guys because the nice guys are going to be boring. You want the big, over the top scumbags like Ace Hanlon. Oh, I. Now that you say that, I kind of want another Sam Raimi character. I want Bonesaw. I want Macho Man in this. <laughs> Just, you're going to die. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and he would have fit in this movie. That's the thing. It's because this movie's anachronistic to start with. It's not really like realistic for the time. I mean, so over the top. Macho Man Savage would have been a fantastic gunslinger in this movie. Yes, as Gene Hackman's watching from a ridiculous throne. <laughs> like, they bring out this chair, and it is. It's a throne and we have a random blind kid who's throwing bullets to people and I, he was in charge of the explosives wasn't he for no good reason well if you watch at the start of the movie uh leo dicaprio's character the kid has the dynamite and he sleeps on top of it yes. and he guards it so nobody will steal it so sharon stone knows that because she sleeps on leo's bed she knows that there's dynamite so it's all through leo's dynamite and the blind kid and court at the end that she pulls off the subterfuge as they would say yeah, it's just leading to the ridiculousness. Like, the one person you would not want in charge of dynamite is the blind kid. But <laughs> but that's where we went to. Uh, well, okay, that's that's one thing I want to get across about this movie to people. It is that it's not a Western. It's it's a comedy for the most part. Like, I cannot tell you the amount of times I laughed during this movie. It's just how the audacity of what Sam Raimi is trying to put into a Western movie. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a comedy and it's over the top. And then at the end, it will sucker punch you with emotion. And that's the part that I always get across to people. This movie makes me tear up almost every time once we get the reality of Ellen's life. And we we did. We've talked about a couple of the things. People getting brained in the Sam, Sam Raimi fashion. There are shots of people with holes through their chest as well. There's a uh, member, I guess is the phrase I'm going to use, shot off at one point for a guy that was unkind to the ladies of the night uh, <laughs> children the children ladies of the night yeah yeah there were it's a it's kind of a it's a like a morality play ellen comes to town and she's trying to r uh, right all these wrongs and there's one wrong in town immediately is that there's a 
brothel owner trying to pimp out little young girls and get them into his business. And she immediately takes offense to that, and she yeah, she shoots off a member in a, out of revenge. Yeah, yeah. It starts off with her in the saloon, and the owner's like, whores next door. And mm-hmm. she's like, what did you say? Like, whores <laughs> next door. And she just kicks the chair out from under him. Like, I, I appreciated that stuff, but they did go into some deep conversations about, you know, the options for women in the West at this time. Yeah, like we've said, it's not historically accurate altogether, but there's there's some seriousness going on about these women that have decided to become prostitutes and their discussions are just, they're depressing. Mm-hmm. I, I love the dialogue in this movie. That's the thing that's like, if it was just a silly comedy. Yeah, haha. Ha. Like it's a like silly movies don't really move me, but there's a lot of depth in this movie, especially the dialogue about you are what you be. Like you could be, you could become a killer. You must cross a line. Don't do that. Your soul is damned. Like you have choices in life. You don't have to do this. And you get into the what women's roles and options were in the old west. Like there's a lot more going on in this movie than just the cartoonishness. They they did have, and I'll criticize this a little bit. Herod is already villain enough. He doesn't mm-hmm. need to have the typical villain speech where they're together at dinner she's all dressed up and he's like you know you and i have a lot in common like yes we all have something in common with the villain (laughs) why is this speech why is this here (laughs) well okay look at this if you're sam raimi doing a movie for the first time and you're you've been given gene hackman as your star you will guarantee that guy's got some dialogue and some speeches he can do, even if it doesn't meet, need to be there, just because that's the only reason Gene Hackman agrees to be in your little piddly movie. Yeah, there was something, and I can't remember what, and this is horrible podcast commentary, but I'm going to do it anyways, where Sam Raimi actually told Gene Hackman to do some, directed him in the scene, and Hackman just looked at him and said, I'm not doing that. Yeah, <laughs> that's, uh, I, I, I can cover you on that one. I remember reading the story in, uh, you know, Bruce Campbell, obviously, right? Yes. So Bruce Campbell wrote a book called, uh, I think it's If Chins Could Talk or something like that, his first (laughs) book, and it's all about his history. Now, Bruce Campbell was in this movie, but all his stuff was cut later. Sam Raimi had him in the movie, but it was cut. Tragedy. Yeah, so Bruce Campbell was in 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 the location filming scenes, so he has a lot of stories about the quick and the dead, and one of his favorites is how Gene Hackman would not listen to Sam Raimi. There was nothing Sam Raimi could say that Gene Hackman would listen and say, yeah, that's a good idea. Every single thing was, I'm Gene Hackman, F you, go away, I'll do it my way. So <laughs> Sam, Ra- Sam Raimi had to, had to deal with that the entire movie. And somehow Gene Hackman kind of steals the show, but it's not really Sam Raimi's doing. Hackman just does what he's going to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's a great actor for good reason, but I can't imagine working with that. If we're, <laughs> hey, can you do this? No. Uh, um. All right, then. Well, I'd like to keep working in Hollywood. So, uh, (laughs) yeah, yeah, we'll do it your way. This is something my dad told me when I was young. Gene Hackman has never been in a bad movie. And that's something I have. I will take to my grave because my dad was actually correct about that thing. No matter what happened, no matter how bad a movie is, Gene Hackman being in it will give it an air of of, uh, legitimacy, even though he is probably an incredible pill to work with. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, yeah, this can't. This movie can't be bad when you're endangering small children for your trick shots. Yeah, the, the kind of flamboyant guy who's doing a bunch of the tricks off of his horse and things like that. I'm like, yeah, that's great, shooting cards that small children are holding up. But it, it was court, wasn't it? That calls him out for it and says, "Didn't you blow off a girl's thumb in Mexico or something like that?" No, that's uh, yeah. This is Ace Hamlin, the trick shot artist, the most famous man in the West. He shoots a little playing card out of a young girl's hand, and it's Herod. 
because Herod hates oh, yeah. Ace Hamlin. He's like, yeah, I heard you blew a girl's thumb off in Tucson or something. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just watching this and everyone's just kind of golf clapping. I'm thinking of, yeah, we are endangering small children for a trick shot. This is, I, I was fine with that guy biting it. <laughs> well, okay, here's an even funnier thing. If The more you watch this movie, if you watch it again, watch all the spectators standing behind the gunfighters during the gunfight. Yeah, I noticed that. <laughs> that was in one of my notes. I'm like, there are a couple of things that make no sense. Like, clear the path of gunfighters. Don't shoot your guns indoors. Like, they're shooting them in the saloon into the <laughs> ceiling. Like I'd... You These took out a couple things. of whores in the attic. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, this is what I'm thinking as an adult. As a child, they're like, this is cool, guns and whatever. And as an adult, I'm like, I wonder if there was insurance in the late 1800s for getting your roof shot. Yes. But again, so, that ties back to my fact that Sam Raimi's stuff doesn't usually take place in the known universe. It, they have their own physics, their own storytelling. And yeah, the people standing behind the gunfighters in a gunfight, which, again, is a lot of faith in the gunfighters. That they're going to hit each other. Yeah. Yeah. And they always <laughs> did. So props to that. Uh, we talked a little bit about the casting choices, but there are a couple alternative casts I have to mention. Mm-hmm. Liam Neeson was the first choice for Court, not Russell Crowe. Mm-hmm. So what do you think about Liam Neeson here? Do, would he fit? I mean, he's that guy's good in everything. That's Qui-Gon. So I can absolutely see him as Court. But again, it's Sharon Stone's game, and Sharon Stone loved this unknown Australian guy, Russell Crowe. So, but I can totally see Liam Neeson there. Although, personally, I would not change a single cast member in this movie, but that is one I could see working, too. He had a particular set of skills. Yeah, I could see it. Yeah. And Matt Damon turned down the role of the kid. So Yeah, I mean, I, I could see that, but he's not as young-looking as Leo. It, Leo, the kid is so much more effective if he looks like he's about 12. Yeah, yeah, this was more like what's eating Gilbert Grape, Leo, yeah. than, you know. <laughs> the special needs gunfighter, yes. Then bowl cut Matt Damon is, I don't know what age Matt Damon would have been in this movie, but I think Leo was, he was 21, something like that. <laughs> 21 looks like 12. Yeah, yeah, that, that was a little bit problematic. I kind of wanted them to do something, age him up a little bit, because Sharon Stone sleeps with this character called the kid yeah these ages aren't working for me (laughs) it's the old west the different statute of limitations back then yeah yeah i guess it's shoe on the other foot usually it's the guy sleeping with a much too young kind of bond scenario woman so in this (laughs) case sharon stone's like hey i would like to sleep with leonardo leonardo dicaprio Although, in her defense, she did say later, he was the worst kisser she has ever worked with in Hollywood. It was like kissing somebody's arm. Yeah, that that's cold. She <laughs> pays his salary and then insults his kissing technique at 20-something. Yeah. She did say Russell Crowe was the best she's ever had, though. Oh, yeah. She was all over Russell Crowe. I mean, again, she handpicked him. So, yeah, she was she was already a fan of his. Yeah. I don't know where, where she would have seen him. Somehow she knew that he was a big star in Australia. Apparently, I have to be very grateful to her because my favorite movie of all time is Gladiator. So well, there th- you go. Thank you, Sharon Stone and The Quick and the Dead. This gets an extra half star from me just because Gladiator was made because of you. Well, yeah, I mean, you can make the argument Spider-Man was only because of Sharon Stone. If Sam Raimi doesn't make this movie, someone doesn't give him a chance on Spider-Man in a couple of years. So. I'll give her two thirds credit, but Spider-Man 3 still exists. <laughs> yeah, but Raimi gets bored after a while. He's... He's like a baseball manager who comes in with a, a ton of talent and fire, and his shtick only lasts for about a year or two. Like, Raimi isn't meant to do, like, three movies. 
<laughs> and we we get another famous name stepping in here. So I'm going to talk about the film creation a little bit. Mm-hmm. So our producer is Josh uh, Donan. He works with Raimi on Drag Me to Hell as executive producer. We've also got Patrick Markey, Alan Shapiro, and our writer is Simon Moore. But they couldn't get the ending to work. Mm-hmm. And they had to rewrite it at the last minute. And just like today, if you can't fix your movie, if you've got Zack Snyder doing things and he's messing things up, who do you call? Right, Josh Whedon. Yes, Josh Whedon stepped in and fixed the movie for Sam Raimi. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, I didn't know that until recently. Like, I've always thought this movie is better than it has any right to be. And it wasn't until I recently learned, oh, Joss Whedon came in and touched up the ending. And, like, the ending, I think, is the best part. I think it's fantastic. So, yeah, there's a lot of star power in this movie. Yeah. Yeah, And Joss Whedon is kind of famous for promoting female characters. So he's going to do Lady Ellen a do-right by her. So that was cool. Yeah, and I just read an interview with Simon Moore, the guy who wrote this movie. I don't know much about Simon Moore. He just wanted to do this old-style kind of Western. And what his, his script, I'm assuming, is not as cartoony as Sam Raimi made it into. Raimi kind of <laughs> makes it his own thing. But he was like, I wanted to write this old-style spaghetti Western. But he's like, I realize as I'm writing the movie, if I throw a female in here as the main lead, it really changes a lot of the dynamics of the story quite a bit. So I've got to give Simon Moore credit for that. He's the one that came up with the idea. Again, People laughed at the idea when this movie came out. Oh, a, a female gunslinger, Sharon Stone. Like, why would anybody watch that movie? But again, it's it's so much different than you think it's going to be. Yeah, we've we've talked a lot about Sam Raimi. We've covered him on another podcast. We have Drag Me to Hell, so check that out. But he does. He has this very specific style. He has a lot of people that he likes working with. So you mentioned Bruce Campbell. He was cut from this movie, but he actually was going to be involved in the wedding scene. So that was cut out. <laughs> Bruce Bruce is great. I have a, so even more trivia on that. I just read this recently. That There's a, a famous character actor named Pat Hingle in this movie. He plays, the I think, the saloon owner, the barkeep. Mm-hmm. And they didn't have a lot for him to do. And so they brought in Bruce Campbell, and Raimi's like, here, I'll make up some fake scenes with you and Pat Hingle so he feels like he's more a part of the movie. <laughs> so Campbell was just there basically to babysit Pat Hingle and to film these scenes that were never going to be used in the movie. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love Bruce. He's he's great. And we've talked about Evil Dead, Evil Dead mm-hmm. too. So, yeah, he was really into horror. I've never seen, like, the Hudsucker proxy, was, which was right between Army of Darkness and Quick and mm-hmm. the Dead. But yeah, then he gets the Spider-Man franchise, then he goes back to horror with Drag Me to Hell, and he's coming out with Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. That is probably my most anticipated movie of next year. Can't wait. Mm-hmm. You know, there's uh, two Sam Raimi movies we're not mentioning, and people often forget about them. One is called A Simple Plan with Billy Bob Thornton and Bridget Fonda and Bill Paxton. Mm-hmm. That was a Sam Raimi movie. It's a gritty true crime movie, paranoia movie kind of. But then he did a baseball movie that yes. I always loved called For Love of the Game, which I, I'm going to cover that on Staff Picks soon because I've always been a fan of it. I completely forgot that's also Sam Raimi. Yeah, I didn't realize until studying up for this podcast because it's just – that's not his style. Mm-hmm. Uh, no one no one has an extremity shot off, cut off, at least <laughs> not that I remember. There's There's no real gore in it. So this <laughs> is – he can't help himself. There's always some just outlandish gore. As far as the cinematography goes, I felt like this movie was almost claustrophobic. Like we're, <laughs> even though you're in 
this alley, this dueling street, really that's, we had the saloon and we had the dueling street and it was just packed with spectators at all times. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure the zoom cuts into people's faces don't help. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You have to keep in mind, I've seen this movie like a hundred times, maybe 150. I have no idea. So it's like, I'm trying to imagine what it's like seeing it for the first time, not being used to these weird zoom cuts. Yeah, the editing, there was a gunfight montage (laughs) about the middle of the movie. And it's got like these black Olin Mills style background. And some people might be too young for that reference. But for the people around my age, like just... You have their headshot, but it's it's black in the background. It was a strange stylistic choice. It was <laughs> jarring for me, I will admit. You know, Sam Raimi's middle name is Strange Stylistic Choice. Yeah. yeah that's fair. <laughs> I'll flat out say he's my favorite director. The two directors, I will always see anything they make are Sam Raimi and James Cameron, just because Cameron will throw more money at anything that has ever been spent on a movie before, and Raimi will always do something interesting. And, like, I... I the Quick and the Dead might be the most Sam Raimi movie. Evil Dead 2 might be the most Sam Raimi movie. Uh, Drag Me to Hell, I'm a huge fan of that one. That might be the most Sam Raimi movie. But they're all, you know, children of the same father. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he is up there. He's definitely up there. As soon as I saw that Sam Raimi was attached to this, I picked it before I knew. Mm-hmm. It's like, all right, I'm in for a good time. It's got a great yeah. cast. Now it's elevated for me. I am. I'm going to be in a happy place. Oh, yeah. The, the first gunfight. If you ever watch it again, it's the first gunfight with uh, the Swedish champion, Gustav, Gusten, and uh, the kid. Yeah. That's the, I think we set the record for the most weird jump zoom cuts in one scene ever in a movie. Yeah, they even – this he does Xena Warrior Princess, and it's the same font. Like, I had no idea seeing a font could just refresh part of my childhood. But I'm like, oh, my goodness, where have I seen this before? And <laughs> – and Xena came out like that year, maybe a year later. So that's another, if you didn't know Sam Raimi was involved with Xena. Yep. It, mm-hmm. it came off of this as well. Yeah. Again, I just, I just wish more directors were like Sam Raimi because he does not take himself very seriously, which I do think is a problem in modern movies. I think most movies tend to take themselves fairly seriously. I've never seen a Raimi movie where I've thought, you know, he takes himself very seriously. Like everything he does is some tribute to the three stooges on Sam, some level. Yeah, he doesn't get in his own way too much. There's not just long, obnoxious monologues or whisper scenes. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm going to throw Christopher Nolan under the bus right now. I don't have to adjust my audio every six seconds <laughs> between the music and the dialogue and back and forth. Yeah, he's he's not indulgent, I think is the word that we've criticized many directors over. He's yeah. indulgent in a Raimi way, but he's not indulgent in these scene-chewing ways. Except when you have Gene Hackman, because <laughs> yeah, he's not—he's not trying to impress critics. He's—he's he's basically writing movies for ten-year-olds, and I don't think Sam Raimi will ever change. He, his target audience is ten-year-olds that should be home watching the Three Stooges hit each other. Yeah, kind of reminds me of Taika Waititi. Like... Yes, I love Taika Waititi. There's my number three favorite director. All right, all right, love Taika. Need. I need what we do in the shadows to come back on TV. That's Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm doing the movie on Staff Picks pretty soon, but I've been into the TV show lately, too. I didn't think I'd like the TV show as much because I like the movie so much, but I love them both equally. Oh, my goodness. It's so great. And that movie is just fantastic. So go check out that one. I don't like vampire flicks, but that is Vampires Meet the Office, I think, is mm-hmm. the way to describe it. And it is just hilarious. 
Would you like some Paschetti? <laughs> <laughs> That's my wife's favorite movie, so I can quote that one. She quotes that all the time. Oh my goodness. Favorite movie. I love it. But uh, mm-hmm. that's great. Your wife has great taste. <laughs> so I've got to herd these cats back in and we're going to talk about the atmosphere. So this was set in uh, late 1800s. They never really give us a specific date. 1800s-ish. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The guns are from like 1876. We talked about how a lot of this really isn't realistic, but the guns were. But they were just really uncommon guns for that period. It was an old west town called Redemption, which actually wound up being Tucson, Arizona. Mm-hmm. And the set design, it was the same designer, Patricia von Brandenstein. She did Amadeus, and she also does The Untouchables. So we covered Amadeus. She knows what she's doing. Like, I'm going to go get Patricia and just let her go nuts. Go, go build this town, make it as, I guess unsavory as possible so we're okay with killing people in the street so anything from the set design stand out to you mario now the only thing is that i know a little trivia on this movie they built the town just for the movie on this little lot somewhere in arizona built it up then burned it all down blew it up at the end and that was it and there's no record of it anymore (laughs) so it's kind of famous because they destroyed the set like they actually did at the end that was the end of the movie yeah yeah go out with a bang that was great though it's a little concerning. Uh, you've got one shot. You better hope your cameras don't break. You hope, better hope you get your shot. I don't know. Sam Raimi does not jump with a parachute. He just jumps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so our wardrobes, they were a little more muted than I, I just came. West. Off, what do you think? I just Come came on. off of Silverado. Silverado had a, a lot more colorful wardrobe. It also had Jeff Goldblum in it wearing like a pimp suit. So... We can talk about accurate time periods or whatnot. I did like when uh, Gene Hackman invites Sharon Stone to dinner, and she somehow has a ball dress that she's been traveling with all these miles. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, where did that come from? Did she rent it from one of the ladies of the night? Or Yes. Hardly any stains on this one. Take this one whore dress. Yeah. <laughs> and what I found as a great tidbit there were 12 other Western films shooting simultaneously in 1994. So there was a shortage of Old West costumes. What they wound up getting is what appeared on screen. Like they were just taking leftovers from everywhere. <laughs> and Sharon Stone, we've given her a lot of credit through this movie. We'll talk about the pants a little bit. They were so ridiculously tight, she couldn't actually sit down. But. <laughs> She fired her stand-in because her stand-in was getting more attention from the crew than she was. Oh, no. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> I heard that. Yeah, you, you've got to respect Sharon Stone in skin-tight pants. You cannot pay attention to whatever her stunt double was. I would like her stunt double's name. You hope it's someone famous later on. I don't know. If they're paying more attention to the stunt double than Sharon Stone, like, who is this woman? Yeah, who's overshadowing Sharon Stone in 1995? Yeah, I don't know. She made sure she doesn't work again. (laughs) Sharon Stone made sure she was buried in the bottom of a pit somewhere. Never find the body she's taken care of. Yeah. Our special effects and lighting. Talked about it a lot. This is, I just wrote, Raimi-esque. Anything stand out to you as far as the special effects, Mario? 
No, because, again, it's a dusty western town, and it's the only special effects are going to be the Sam Raimi stuff, the exploding heads, the hole through Clay Cantrell's head. That's the one that everyone tends to talk about. Yeah. And there's a, yeah, bullet holes through Gene Hackman. A lot of people, I remember, I've read some reviews of this over the years, and people really take offense with that hole through the head. They're like, that would not be realistic. And I'm like, it's a Sam Raimi movie. It's not supposed to be realistic. People have holes in their heads after they get shot in Sam Raimi movies. I have to imagine that was in his contract. Like, I'm going to put a giant gaping hole at some point in this movie. And they're looking at Sharon Stone like, really? With this guy? Do, do we have to? Just, yeah. Or I walk. Come on. How, again, how could people not love the audacity of Sam Raimi trying to do a big budget Hollywood Western? Yeah. He, no he other does, director. Yeah, no other director would do that. And he does get his zombie scene in with Spotted Horse. But <laughs> not just once, but twice. So yeah, that's Sam. That seems great. <laughs> Sam Raimi double dipping. So, soundtrack. You said you don't typically like westerns. What do you think of the soundtrack here? I'm glad you brought that up because I'm going to say I think maybe the greatest thing out of this movie, again, one of my all time favorite movies, a movie that's almost uncomparable to any other one in Hollywood history, except maybe a Knight's Tale. It's the only one I kind of come up with. <laughs> the soundtrack is fantastic in this movie. It's one of the best Western soundtracks I've ever heard. And I will give it the ultimate nerd compliment right here. When I play Roller Coaster Tycoon and there's a Western town, I will always play the Quick and the Dead music as the background as you're walking around, because that's the ultimate Western music. Oh, I want to get off the wild ride. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. You will get off it when I say you'll get off it, but you'll listen to the Quick and the Dead suite the entire time. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that. Yeah, Raimi, he usually hires his buddy. His buddy's name is Joseph Laduca. Uh, does most of Sam Raimi's films. But the studio would not let Joseph be involved here. They're like, we want an A-lister. We want this to be successful. So they hired Alan Silvestri. Uh, the one that stood out to me was the kids showdown with Herod. I like yes. that music quite a bit. I'm not sure which particular one you're picking to make people vomit in a roller coaster <laughs> Western theme park. That's the one that's there's it's called the quick and the dead suite. If you listen on YouTube, it's like 32 minutes. It's all these just for different uh, melodies and stuff. The one you're talking about is the main theme and they only play it two times in the movie, including the one that you just mentioned when kid is walking out to face his dad, Herod, that's the only time you hear the entire Quick and the Dead main theme in the movie. It's awesome. Okay. Yeah. That was the one that definitely stood out. So mm -hmm. Alan Silvestri got that. But it does have your typical Western, like bright, brassy, triumphant music when people are riding away. Like after Sharon Stone shoots Tobin Bell, I forget his name, Kelly, Kelly. shoots him in the beginning and she rides away. It kicks into this bright Western triumphant mm -hmm. music. And so we've we've got some of that. I, I feel like to some extent, Western music is fairly easy to write. You have such a breadth of sampling. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the, the Quick and the Dead main theme, that was pretty cool. Yeah, they uh, it's got the awesome trumpet. I used to be a trumpet player, so I can always appreciate good trumpet in, in songs. And the trumpet sound in this one is especially good. But it's got the little Sam Raimi touch. Again, it's always a little over-the-top and cartoony. That is this awesome music is playing. You get the over-the-top whip crack. The whoosh. Yes. <laughs> yeah, there are a couple. He has to get the spurs to the slow jangles as yeah. Ellen returns. I'm like, this is pure Boba Fett style. <laughs> you know, we've got the Mandalorian. I don't know. 
I don't know if you're allowed to play music samples from stuff on, on your show. You should play it right here, some of this uh, theme, so people know what you're talking about. It's really identifiable. We are not. <laughs> <laughs> well, then don't play it. We'll, we'll hum it. Have a... <laughs> yeah. But it's great. There's, who's the guy that does all the Western themes? Morricone? Is that the guy? I think so, yeah. I, I think I read a quote somewhere reading that his biggest regret is that he didn't get to do a Quick in the Dead because it's such an amazing theme song and he didn't do it. Mm. Yeah. So I just want to point out there's some street cred behind this music here. All right. Props to Alan Silvestri. He's he's a big fan of the podcast, so you know <laughs> he'll appreciate the shout out. <laughs> so we're about to dig into our favorite part of the podcast. Are you ready to hand out some movie superlatives? I am always ready for that, my friend. All right. This is great. So our MVP, director, actor, supporting actor, who have you got, Mario? This is a tough one because I can make the argument for three different people. Gene Hackman steals any scene he's in because he's amazing. But then you have Sharon Stone, who is the brains behind this movie and brought in all these actors and directors that it wouldn't have been the same if she hadn't done that. But it's kind of a problem because I don't think her character is the strongest in the movie. It's kind of underplayed. So I don't know if it's necessarily better when she's on the screen. She just sets it up so she's like the supporting player to all the bigger, the bigger actors out there. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I cannot overlook the fact that this is the genius and the product of Sam Raimi, my favorite director of all time. So I have to say, this is a Sam Raimi movie. He's the MVP. And I still, to this day, feel horrible that he wanted to quit Hollywood because it tanked so hard. I love it. Yeah. Sam Raimi's always a great choice. And I struggled the same. Like Sharon Stone is responsible for so much. She pulls this all together. And even though the movie's kind of centered on her, I didn't feel like she, it was improved by her presence. Yeah. She didn't do a bad job. It's just, she's having all these other people kind of act circles around her. <laughs> you know, that ha anytime you're faced with Gene Hackman, that's just going to happen. Uh, he's my pick. Mm -hmm. I, I love an evil bad guy and he just revels in it. And everything he just, he says, he's so condescending and misogynistic, <laughs> but in a way that's just, if he had a mustache, he would be twirling it. <laughs> it's great. And I love it. I hate that he was mean to Sam Raimi, but he's your bad guy. Yeah, I was going to say, it's funny because he was in the movie Unforgiven Playing almost the exact same role, the yes. evil, you know, crime boss, unstoppable gunslinger. And that was only three years before this. So it was kind of a risk for him to do this exact same role twice in a row, but he nails it in both of them. He's great in both. And to the point that I often get the two roles mixed up, I kind of forget what parts are from Quick and the Dead and what's from Unforgiven because he has a lot of the same dialogue. Yeah. Just picture him sitting on a cartoonish throne and then you've got Quick and the Dead. <laughs> yes. So who's your best supporting actor? Now, this one kills me. I had to think about this one long and hard because this whole movie is supporting actors. Yeah. It's tough. Like, Russell Crowe is the heart of the movie, really. He's really the star. If you look at the storyline and the plot, he's the one that ends up being the hero. But I have to say, I love Leo in this movie just because I think it's so effective, the scene, and we're going to spoil it for people, where Leo has to shoot a gunfight against his, he has to go up against his own father, and his father kills him, and Leo has to have this very emotional dying scene. And I think it's one of the best scenes in the movie. So I have to say every scene with Leo in it is probably a little better than it probably would have been with someone like Matt Damon. Yeah, that was really emotional. He's like, did I get him? Mm -hmm. And he, he actually did. He shot him in the neck or mm -hmm. grazed him, I guess. 
but I've listened to arguments for other supporting actors. Like the, I can make the case for about four people. That's I like uh, just about everybody in this movie. Well, you're going to get one of those arguments from me. I went with Jonathan Gill, who plays Spotted Horse. <laughs> I was going to pick Spotted Horse. I thought, no, nah, he's not in it enough. But it's a great, it's a great pick. I love that character so much. I love that there's some basis on historical fact here as far as not being able to be killed by bullets. This was an actual thing from the area that they were from. So it, I wanted more of him. I wanted him to actually kill some other random person that we get to see. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, Jonathan Gill, you're the man. You know, the more you watch this movie, the one other name I'd throw out there is, uh, I think, Pat Hingle as the barkeep. Yes. <laughs> he is really the soul of this movie. You don't really notice him until you watch it a couple times. Yeah, he's great. I want to see those Bruce Campbell scenes. <laughs> so, Hidden Jim, which is our underappreciated minor cast or element, who have you got? Well, I mean, this is kind of cheating, but I was going to say it again. I'm glad you brought it up earlier, but the soundtrack... Mm-hmm. Like there's so many things people remember about this movie. I don't think they tend to remember the soundtrack. And I would argue the so- soundtrack ties everything together. And it's the most definable thing about this movie. You remember it, you hear it, you'll Im- immediately think of the quick and the dead. So I'm going to say just the soundtrack. And again, I would advise you to go back and watch it maybe another time or two and just listen to how the soundtrack is used so perfectly in so many parts in the movie and how it, it, it stirs your emotions up either in a good or a bad way. It's like done. It's like a Rocky movie. It's done so perfectly in with the story. So you didn't go with the kids that are just beating Russell Crowe with blocks of wood? Daddy's going to kill you, preacher. Gosh, where are your parents? But no, well, no, the, they know where their parents is. He's shooting the preacher. That's true. <laughs> yeah, the soundtrack's a great pick. Uh, there's no there's no wrong pick as long as it's not a push. That's what we don't like. It's, someone says, ah, I couldn't pick. No, no, you got to pick. For me, I got to go with the Raimi element. The Oldsmobile Delta 88 is in every Raimi film up to this point, except for this one. Mm -hmm. But the wagon's chassis uses the disassembled car. You can see it clearly at an hour and 21 minutes. So the Oldsmobile Delta 88 from Evil Dead is my hidden gem. I'm glad you said that. I was going to bring that up. Yeah, the classic, they call that. I don't know if people know their Sam Raimi movies. It's called, Sam calls it the classic. It's in every one of his movies. And he somehow snuck it into the quick and the dead, even though you didn't notice it. Yeah. I mean, it would be a huge problem if it actually just appeared. So (laughs) I'm glad it's just part, they took the chassis and put it on the wagon. So that was cool. (laughs) You mentioned earlier that you love this cast and that you're not going to recast anyone. I hope that's not your actual answer. Who are you going to recast? This by far was the toughest question, and I will spare you and not say, ah, a push, I'm not going to answer that one. There's only two people in this movie that I think maybe could have been improved a little, and unfortunately one of them is our star, <laughs> Sharon mm. Stone. Like, But I don't know, the problem is I don't know a specific name. Like, You need a certain archetype to pull off this role. You need someone who's kind of tough, kind of can talk monosyllabic kind of like Clint Eastwood but they have since they're female but they have to be kind of icy as well unfriendly and so Sharon Stone actually was a good pick for this although I don't think she's maybe the strongest actor in this movie so I have a hard time picking who I would put in there instead so I'm going to listen maybe to your your answer and I may come up with someone to replace her but the other one that that jumps out at me is that the character Scars he's the guy who kills people then cuts a little thing on his yes. arm he's the, the, the cross-eyed guy 
he's in the movie a lot, and he's not an actor I recognize, and I think you could probably put a big-name actor there and make give him more of like a cameo or something. So I'm trying to think of an actor who's an absolute just psychopath, who always plays a psychopath, who you know is just a badass. And the guy that I come up with is like Danny Trejo or something. What are the stars? <laughs> I would love Danny Trejo here. I could see him carving something into himself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I love that. But I'm still thinking about the Sharon Stone answer, because I think there is someone who would be better, but I'm trying to think of who it would be. I think it's like a Charlize Theron. Yeah, she, there you go. She, was she in, wouldn't have been old enough at the time. Yeah. The problem. Yeah, like A Million Ways to Die in the West. She did that character, and she did a great job, but yeah. I have to imagine one, one name that immediately popped to my mind when they won someone who's, you know, big and imposing and could be scary, and you can buy them as an athlete. Gina Davis is maybe the one I think maybe would have been okay in this. Okay. All right. I like that. Mm-hmm. I want Bruce Campbell, so I don't care who you recast. You could recast Sharon Stone with Bruce Campbell. I'm still happy, but I think where I want him as the bartender of the saloon, I know you were just praising him, but I want Bruce Campbell in the back just wiping down the bar, doing whatever, maybe get one or two lines in. If we've got to cut his wedding scene, put him back in as the bartender. That's what I want. The minute you said Bruce Campbell, I was thinking bartender. So you, I'm right on there with on the same page with you. Yep. Or piano player doing his Hungry Like the Wolf uh, <laughs> yes. rendition. Okay. Old Spice, if you want to sponsor us. Uh, best shot. What's your best cinematic moment? The best cinematic moment for me, this and this one is easy. Like there's so many scenes in this movie I just know off the top of my head. I remember how Raimi does it. I know the cinematography. But you nailed it earlier. The entrance of the kid when he's about to fight his father, yeah. that is, I mean, that is some of the best filmmaking I've ever seen, like a lead up to a sports scene, because you feel every emotion. The kid's going there to have a duel with his father. You know the kid's going to die, and you can see it on his eye, on his face. He knows. He knows he's probably going to die, but he has to go through with it now, and you can see it's all great acting from Leo. It's just a big, long, established one shot of him walking out from this from his gun store out to the street to meet his father. You see Gene Hackman off in the distance, and they play the entire quick and the dead theme song that's the scene that always i always notice when i'm watching yeah when he says i'll paraphrase this he's like shoot that was fast like he he'd seen his dad shoot and you're right he knew it was a death march that's a great shot it kind of reminded me of like the raging bull long shots Mm -hmm. so yeah yeah great pick I'm going with a Raimi moment. I understand it's CGI, but I really like the shot immediately after Herod is shot by Ellen and it pans to a shadow on the ground with a hole in the chest. Mm-hmm. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, I always like that shot. Again, that's one that purists of Westerns tend to take offense with. Like You wouldn't see the sunlight going through the bullet hole. But I'm like, you know what? Sam Raimi does goofy stuff like that. Why not? Yeah. Yeah, why not? So best scene. What have you got? Well, this is a tough one because we're going best acting here. I'm kind of like, you, you, you said I could pick favorite plot point or best acting. The one I'm going to go with, like, I was immediately, my first thought was the scene with them in dinner. I know you said you didn't like the dinner scene because it's, it's not necessary in the plot. But I really like Gene Hackman's dialogue to her and it establishes their relationship, how he's a badass, how he killed his own wife, how his dad tried to kill him, how he's fearless, and how he bluffs her with the lighter. I love that whole scene. But... I changed my mind at the last minute because there's one scene in this movie that's very underrated and it gives it the emotional punch that this movie needs to keep it from just being a straight up cartoon. And it's the scene at the very end where 
the flashback when we see how Gary Sinise died Ellen's father. Yeah. And I have to say, the way Raimi does this in the movie is so amazing. We see this flashback four different times in the movie. And again, I've already done this on staff pick, so I did my homework. I already know how this, what we're going to talk about. Where Raimi will reveal pieces of that flashback throughout the movie, and you never see the entire thing until the very end of the movie. Where you know Gene Hackman stormed the town and kidnapped her father, Gary Sinise, and strung him up and, and shot him. But you never know how horrible this was that Gene Hackman made Ellen kill her own father. Yeah. That is the most heart-wrenching scene, and it gives this movie so much more emotional punch than you think it needs, than you think it's going to have. And again, I'm a father. I have a young a daughter. She's 22 now, but you're dad of a little girl. Just imagine your little girl shooting you and having to live with that for the rest of her life, knowing it was her fault. Like, that's the scene that gets me in this movie and that elevates this to so much better of a movie than I think it should be. Yeah, it's a hugely horrific, villainous scene. Gives her the gun, says, you know, take your shot, shoot him down. And then it just ends with that quiet thud. She just accidentally shoots him in the head. That yeah. is, you're right, that's awful, uh, but impactful. Mm -hmm. It's very emotional. Yeah, it's, it's terrible, but that's what makes it great. Yeah, just the silence after that accidental shot. Man, that's a great pick. For me... I really like that scene, but I'm going to go for sake of content. I'm going to go to her first duel mm -hmm. where we're cutting back and forth between her, Kelly, and the clock. And you're just getting jump cut, jump cut, but you hear the clock in the background. And I know it's close to real time, but you're hearing those seconds. And it seems like an eternity until you can hear that click of the clock right before she's able to draw. So that... That was really cool. It was tense. It was quiet. It was done really well. Mm -hmm. I agree. That's a great pick. Best wardrobe or makeup moment? <laughs> I'm going to go back again. This is my mystery science theater training where I love mocking things in movies. I love that Sharon Stone has a full-on Japanese ball gown somehow in her pack that she's ready to take out to dinner with Herod. So I have to get, give props to Sharon Stone's dress that comes out of nowhere. It was a beautiful dress, though. I will give it that. But yeah, yeah, we see her riding off in the beginning and she is not carrying like a luggage cart or anything like that. So, yeah, I'm just guessing she visited next door like that guy suggested and picked out a dress from them. Uh, for me, it's the guns in general. Uh, Sharon Stone's gun, it's called a knuckle duster. It's smaller than the others. It's actually authentic, but it, it's almost never filmed. Gene Hackman, he's using an 1851 Colt Navy cap, uh, cap and ball revolver. This was a modified gun. It's a modified Derringer. And that was fairly common, but it isn't shot very much in movies. So I thought these were cool props that they brought in and gave everyone a unique gun to play with. It was mm -hmm. pretty cool. Now, did you, you probably read this in the trivia. All the actors got trained in quick draw before the movie. They spent weeks training how to do this. Yeah. Yeah, and Gene Hackman had the most time, so he was yeah. actually the fastest. Hackman was the best, yeah. So he turned out to, the movie was realistic. He was indeed the fastest. I feel like he was going to be the best regardless, like no matter how much time. But it seemed like he got a little bit more time than everybody else. Yeah. Well, he had all the snipers on the roof, so it wasn't really fair. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Change one thing in the movie that you love. What are you changing? I could I could really rock your world with this one. Although you have, you've only seen this movie once, so this might not be as impactful to you. But 
This movie has got a horrific subplot. It's all about redemption, revenge, righting old wrongs. But the key scene in the movie is Herod coming to Ellen's farm when she's a kid and killing her father, and then she has to go for revenge the rest of the movie because something horrible has been done to her. My only qualm with that is I wish Court had been there and had been in Herod's gang at the time and had participating in the killing of her father. That would totally explain her anger towards him so much more if she knew he had been there that day and he had that hanging over his head that he had been part of it. Mm, okay. All right. I kind of want her to go the Inigo Montoya, like, you killed my father, prepare to die. Yeah. And again, I've thought about this way too much over the years. The problem with that theory is, like, the story should dictate that Court should have been there for her father's death. But the problem is that Ellen and Court are supposed to be the same age. They can be a love interest in the movie. So he would have been a child at the time. Like yeah. She so that's the only problem. But the story would be so much more interesting if he had been there and helped kill her father. And then he has to atone for that. Mm. Okay. All right. Going to drag down that Sam Raimi movie with <laughs> some ch child-assisted murder. Well, I mean, it's not like Sam Raimi movies are happy. We let, let us not forget Drag Me to Hell. Oh, I love that movie so much. But yes, yeah, not a happy ending for people. Yeah. I really dislike this one action sequence. It's Ellen running in the rain, shooting at Eugene Dredd. And mm -hmm. it's this Matrix-style nonsense shootout, like, Everybody else is doing these standing quick draws, and she's just charging at him, screaming, firing, and missing. It was like the only time in the movie anyone misses, and it was just such an odd action sequence. I don't do something else. I don't know what. I don't have a better suggestion, but maybe just, I don't know, just not that. Yeah, it, no, I agree with you. That's well, when I think back and like, I didn't really have to rewatch it for this podcast, but I wanted to kind of familiarize myself with the order of the scenes. I always forget that scene is in the movie. I try to remember, okay, Ellen beats Kelly. The kid beats the Swedish champ. I always kind of forget how Ellen gets to the final four. And it's because it's that, that's the duel that I forget about. Yeah. Yeah, we could even cut it. But I, <laughs> it could be part of that Owen Mills montage. <laughs> yeah. But again, it's. The whole, there's the subplot, people, this is one thing that people forget. If you haven't watched the movie in the wild, the, sub, the subplot with Ellen getting revenge on the, the brothel owner for trying to uh, groom the young girl into prostitution. So, like, it's a very personal kill for her, but you kind of forget that if you haven't seen it in a while. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, this had a ton of great lines in it. Mm -hmm. Great actors, just giving a lot of impact. What is your best quote? <laughs> I had to pick three, because that's what I do with this movie. All right. Spotted horse cannot be killed by a bullet. It's one that I <laughs> use to this day all the time. I love the one where Clay Cantrell is facing off with uh, Herod, and Herod's like, to the death, is that okay? And Cantrell's like, well, I was going to kill you anyway. <laughs> but I have to say, the most badass line in this movie is Leo DiCaprio is just trying to impress his father. All he wants is the respect of his father to admit that I'm your son and that I'm as good as you. And then his dad kills him in a gunfight. And Leo reaches up, father, hug me, father, and dies. And Herod says the most badass line in the movie, eh, it was never proven he was my son. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a great villain line. He just walks off. <laughs> it's kind of like the Thor Loki thing. He's adopted. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Yeah, that was, he had a couple great lines. The, I'm not sick or old, and you're not half the man I am. Yeah. What do you got? I've got another Leo line. It's like, is it possible? Is it possible to improve on perfection? <laughs> like, 
I don't know that Matt Damon is going to be able to utter that type of smug arrogance and still be likable, but Leonardo mm-hmm. DiCaprio definitely <laughs> manages. Am I that fast or is Sweden just a very small place? <laughs> His ridiculous narrative of like, I could have gotten up, robbed a bank and gotten back here by the time you drew. I loved all of his quick talk and just his trash talking too. <laughs> yeah. Again, I think that's why I picked him for my MVP and he's not one you, you really realize stands out in this movie, but I have a hard time picking anybody else in that role being as good. So again, props to Sharon Stone for paying him out of her own pocket just because she knew how good he'd be in this. Yeah, definitely. So Mario, we're going to give you a chance to plug your podcast one more time or plug anything else you would like. But if you want to plug your podcast, be our guest. All right. I will plug it for a second, but I have to say one more thing about the quick and the dead, just because I want to get a discussion point in your head. Sure. I've heard this come up a lot. Is the kid actually Herod's son? Because it's never proven one way or another. Oh, he definitely is. Well, that's the thing. But Herod even says at the dinner, my wife was unfaithful. And Sharon says, like, what happened? My wife was unfaithful. You don't understand. She's dead. Maybe that's how, who she was unfaithful with. Maybe that's the, that's the son that came out of that thing. So it's never proven one way or another. But that what, why I'm asking is it leads to the ending. Why is Herod slower than Ellen? Why does she win? And there's several reasons you could say why someone finally beats Herod. But I've heard people suggest it's because Herod just shot his own son and he's rattled. He's, he's, he's off his game a little bit because he, emo- he was emotional after killing Leo a little bit. So it's possible he was rattled, and that rattled that rattledness gave him a little – took away his air of invincibility. So I just want to throw that out there to people who like this movie. It's an interesting discussion point. Yeah, I, I'm still sticking with – yeah, definitely his son. I think he's just writing it off because he doesn't want – he doesn't want to acknowledge it. Could be. I mean, it's not proven, so any there's no wrong answer. Yeah. All right. Plug. So – Again, I run the podcast Staff Picks. It's uh, named after the old blockbuster section where the store members could pick their favorites and recommend them to people, and those were the Staff Picks. That's basically what I do. I I try not to pick all obscure movies. Like, I've done a TV movie from 1981, which you probably haven't seen, called Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. Mm-mm. That's probably the most obscure movie I've done. But I've done more mainstream. I did Titanic, just because everyone craps on James Cameron. Yes, we just did that. <laughs> yeah, someday I'm going to do Avatar, just because people crap on that one, too. I did The Village. So it's not all obscure movies. I've done 120 episodes, and you can find them at staffpicks.podbean.com or on iTunes, and that's the best way. And again, it's just a, if you like my personality or the way I talk about movies, it's just me, and I find some other movie nerd that is as passionate about movies as I am, and we just geek out and walk through the storyline. Again, there's lots of spoilers but we explain to you why you should appreciate this movie and why it's better than you probably thought. So staffpicks.podbean.com. Excellent. Definitely check it out. It's a great format. It's a great listen. So check it out, please. So we've come to the end. This is where we rate and we recommend. I think you've spoiled it a little bit for us, but Mario, (laughs) on, on a zero to five star, half star increments, what do you rate 1995's The Quick and the Dead? Why would somebody come on the show and pick a movie they're going to rate zero stars? I'm just curious. <laughs> I, the lowest I think we've ever rated something on a podcast. I've actually been booted off of a podcast where I gave it a one and a half. Russell wouldn't let me talk about it. Um, I think it's a two. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, two, two is the worst that officially we've recorded. 
Okay. Well, again, I've seen thousands of movies in my lifetime. I know almost all these obscure little crappy movies. The Quick and the Dead is one of my 10 favorite movies of all time. I could not give this anything a less than a five. I would give it a 10 if I was allowed to, if I would not be kicked off the podcast. <laughs> it's just, this movie is everything I like in movies. I cannot imagine how somebody would not enjoy this movie. It's, I think it's just so much fun. That's awesome. Yeah, for me, this was a three-star movie. I've got to duck a little bit right after that. I had fun. I had a lot of fun. If you're looking for something different in a Western, this is it for you. I love Sam Raimi. I think this is probably, this would be my go-to like popcorn-esque mm. Western. So yeah, it's a ton of fun. Uh, some of the stylistic choices just knocked it down a little bit for me. I really <laughs> wanted, I, I wanted different things, particularly for the gun dueling montage and, you know. Gene Hackman given this trite villain speech. That was a great scene. I did like the lighter fake out, though. Like, if you're sitting across from Hackman, that's got to be intimidating, regardless <laughs> I, of... Yeah, I, I have faith. If you watch this movie four or five more times, it will get up to a four for you. So I, I do not take offense at your three, good sir. <laughs> wow, this was, this was great. I'm going to go ahead and read off our next list. We're actually going to be talking about Leonardo DiCaprio again. We're going to do one of three movies. I'm going to read them off and then let you know what our choice is going to be. So option one, we have Shutter Island 2010. 1954, a U.S. Marshal investigates the disappearance of a murderer who escaped from a hospital for the criminally insane. Option two, Inception from 2010 busy year a thief who steals corporate secrets through the use of dream sharing technology is given the inverse task of planting an idea into the mind of a ceo and option three the departed from 2006 an undercover cop and a mole in the police attempt to identify each other while infiltrating an irish gang in south boston all three of these are just awesome awesome movies but we here at retro movie roundtable we have chosen The Departed, so we are shipping up to Boston. So, Mario, thank you once again for coming on. This has been awesome. This is a movie that I hadn't seen, which I always love talking about. And it's great when a guest is just hugely passionate about a movie. It makes it a whole lot more fun. So thank you for your energy. Thank you for recommending this, and thank you for coming. Absolutely. Now, bring me back for the Bad News Bears, and now we're talking. That's my all-time specialty movie. All right, all right. We we could use some sports style. So, uh, yep. And in addition to thanking Mario, we want to thank you, all the lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. Subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever millennials get podcasts. Uh, give us a like on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. Producing and providing this podcast is fun, but it's not free. So we invite you to support the show at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash retro movie roundtable. Any contribution is much appreciated and will go towards making the show better for you and the listeners. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Just remember, I'm your Huckleberry. <laughs>